The Guardian. Uh, I think you're going to appreciate the intro this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Takes me back to an intro I did for a film review section of the Midway News. I wish I kept that cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, John Malone buys Virgin Media, Bow Media buys Planet Rock, and it's bye-bye Delia Smith. Well, from the TV at least. Oh, and uh, by the by, we've got lots of other stuff too. This is Media Talk from the Garden. From the Garden. <laughs> so it's going so well. And joining me to work out just how long it took me to write that intro is Matt Deegan, creative director of Folder Media, and Helen Zaltzman, who is one half of the Sony Winning podcast. Answer me this. Hello. Welcome both. How's your media week been? It's been a busy week this week. Uh, we do lots of radio stuff at Folder Media. We own fun kids. Uh, but I've been in a TV studio. It's all about multi-platform. So lots of exciting green screen stuff with our presenters. This is, a, this is new advertising. TV advertising, online advertising. Well, we just have to wait and see. Yeah, green screen doesn't work on radio, though, I've heard. Yes, no, that, that rules that one out. We'll be dubbing in better versions of ourselves <laughs> later on. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Well, we start this week with the week's big deal. And no, that's not the 1980s TV series starring Ray Brooks, but Liberty Media's £15 billion purchase of Virgin Media. I caught up with The Guardian's former head of media and tech and incoming head of national news, Dan Saber, to find out all about it. Despite what you might have read in some places, John Malone's been in the UK before. He was the eminence grease behind Telewest, which was one of the two companies that made up Virgin Media. He tried to affect the merger with him having the whip hand. That all went wrong. Telewest had too much debt. NTL had too much debt. They'd spent too much money digging up the roads and they weren't having the profits to sort of support that. So Malone was out. There was a debt for equity swap. That was, oh, I don't know, six, seven years ago now. But he's been, he's got another vehicle, Liberty Global, cable operator in any number of European companies, Germany, Belgium, Switzerland, Holland are the big ones, and also some places around the world. And this is his chance to have another crack at the UK to buy, the, you know, now the, the only cable company. But Virgin Media is still a long way behind Sky, uh, you know, 5 million customers, they say, against sort of Sky, which has got well over 10. Sky's always done the sort of, you know, big, bids for sports rights, for example, down the years. Now BT's in the game. It's an interesting deal, but I think it's more of a financial one than a game changer from Virgin Media point of view. And John Malone said already that he's not going to compete, or maybe, or Liberty certainly have said they're not going to compete for sort of uh, premium sports rights, like, for instance, Premier League football, which are all held by Sky at the moment, of course. So that suggests uh, it's more about broadband, superfast broadband, than it is about uh, premium TV. Well, it might suggest that. I think I suggest it's more about the kind of financial side. I think what what... Virgin Media has as a sort of legacy of all those years of, of making losses is a certain amount of sort of tax credits, if you like. At one point, of course, NTL, which had sort of was the original owner of some of those tax losses, the, the, the bigger of the two cable companies that merged to form Virgin Media. Uh, NTL obviously made that famous bid for ITV all those years ago. Remember that? And the idea was that they could use the tax losses of NTL and, and then buy ITV and ITV wouldn't pay any tax and it would all kind of work out quite nicely and they could use ITV's profits to prop up the cable business and so on and so forth. And this is a kind of looks like this deal looks like a variant on that play, really. Uh, that is to say, this time, you know, Liberty Global and Virgin Media taken together, they can, you know, I think Liberty can utilise some of um, Virgin's tax losses, spread them over the business, and and all in all, it's sort of therefore it's a kind of financially efficient transaction. I think that's a lot of what's driving this. I mean, there's sort of loose talk of synergies, although I don't know how you get that much synergies between Britain and Belgium and Britain and Switzerland. Uh, I mean, they're talking about sort of you know knocking out 110 million dollars of cost synergies they must be running one heck of a head office malone and murdoch go back some way um and malone used to be a, a 20 percent shareholder in news corporation not long yeah, ago yeah i'll say 
say, I've got to be honest, I think this rivalry is, is, is somewhat overstated, but, you know... Not least are, by me just then. Uh, yeah. Well, no, I, you know, no, I mean, uh, never by you, of course, John, but look, they're big American media moguls in one sense, but rather different kind of animals. I mean, you know, Murdoch is all sort of all politics and travelling and global interests and, you know, an extraordinary builder and creator of businesses. And I think Malone, uh, uh, I mean, not to diminish the achievements of billionaire, but is less, you know, famously doesn't like flying very much, is not, you know... Focused on the cable business, I mean, has a few investments in Time Warner and the like, but not particularly, um, uh, you know, not as interested in politics in the way that Rupert is. What I think could be interesting is whether this will make more likely the deal that really is logical and would be interesting, which is if Liberty Global finally, you know, writes a big check and buys ITV, because the combination of the, you know, Channel 3, uh, ITV and Pay TV would be very interesting as, as long as it was under a sort of sensible owner with a lot of capital to throw at uh, uh, broadcasting problems. Well, he doesn't like flying, but it's good to know that me and John Malone have w- one thing in common, at least. Uh, yeah, well, that's right. Um, uh, and, and of course, there's your huge, you know, your respective huge wealth, if nothing else. I mean, and yeah. what it would just, uh, yeah, I think Malone is 57th richest person in America, according to Forbes, and, and Murdoch the 36th. So, uh, well, that'll be interesting. I mean, Virgin Media's shares. I mean, I, I, up by about ninety percent in the last year. So this, this, you know, confidence is really to return to Virgin Media, and I think ticking a box for Neil Burkett, uh, who is uh, on one of the boards here at the Guardian. So I better say I'm not, I'm not favouring him because of that. But you know, cable was really, you know, customer service and cable did not go together. They were really bad for years and years and years in the first half of the last decade. I would say that Virgin Media has sort of gradually turn things around and stabilise things. It's been a really long slog. They've got out of channel owning. They used to own Living TV, all that sort of stuff. They don't bid big for sports rights, as you say, and apparently nothing's going to change there. And they've done their best to focus on broadband and grab a meaningful slice of share from uh, from BT. And, you know, they have their place in the market and, you know, they do, you know, and they're doing OK. And I think they've gone from being a joke to being a sort of solid kind of performer. So Neil Burkett, doubtless with loads of money, is riding off into the sunset and we'll see who takes over sort of Virgin Media in the UK and, you know, how that business is run in the future. So where will John Malone be in the next Media Guardian 100? That's the question we should answer possibly in July. Oh, well, I mean, up. How about that? Up. That will that, be my guess. New entry at number 46. Yeah, or 50, wherever it was you said he was, yes. That was Dan Sabah there speaking to me earlier. Um, Helen, it's been quite a turnaround for the cable industry. It was only recently that uh, Virgin Media actually managed to make a profit. And uh, for many years, the story of the cable industry was, you know, digging up roads and making huge losses. <laughs> but even then, they still have uh, a, a debt of $5.7 billion, don't they? Uh, that is part of uh, this buyout. And do you remember the Virgin when it rebranded Virgin Media? Either of you, there was a sort of live. Um, I think they launched Virgin One, didn't they? A general Entertainment Channel trying to take on yeah. Sky One, and, and Richard Branson was in a box in Covent Garden or something. Yeah. Ringing bells. Doing a David Blaine. He's not afraid to do anything. Is he? No, that's right. It's unusual to see him step in front of the cameras. Yeah. Um, but he's probably thinking, "Well, I'm kind of glad I got out of this." Well, he gets two hundred million pounds out of it, doesn't he? He was still what three yeah. percent shareholder in the business. That's right. Um, and Matt, uh, Dan said the uh, interesting possibility looking ahead: the idea that Liberty might then come in and buy ITV, and then that would really be a, that would be a serious sort of shake-up of the UK media scene and exciting stuff. Well, it's a question about whether you want to get into content, isn't it? If you think uh, explosion of uh, pay TV choice now driven by IP. You see what Netflix has done. Uh, they need to grow a subscriber base so they're getting into content launching a uh, new product. Uh, Virgin's in a great place because it's got a network already. It provides that broadband price, the pipes to do that stuff. I'm not sure whether you want to get into content. You've got everyone competing in that in that space. You sign some, you sign carriage deals, you make a, a decent amount of cash, just try and up the average revenue per user. 
don't get worried with all those creatives that want to spend your money on things which might not work. Okay, well, it's time now to look at the second big deal of the week. Well, sort of. Probably not if you're John Malone. This might well be small change. But it is if you are the UK radio industry after Bauer Media bought digital radio station Planet Rock. Bauer, which is home to Kiss and Magic, as well as magazines like Grazia and Heat, never miss an issue, spent between £1 and £2 million on Malcolm Blumel's loss-making station. Planet Rock loses around three hundred grand a year. Bow's the second biggest commercial radio group in the UK, a long way behind Capital and Heart parent company Global Radio. And Planet Rock goes a small way, well, a very small way, you might say, to closing that gap. Now, Matt, uh, Folder Media owns Fun Kids, so you know a lot about digital radio. First off, tell us a bit about the background to this deal. It's been long mooted. It is, I mean, Planet Rock's been around a long time. Yeah, Planet Rock's been around 11, 12 years. Originally set up by GWR back in 1999, um, was sold off by Fru Hazlitt as she was trying to save the company from being acquired uh, by Global. Uh, sold it then, it was acquired by Global anyway. Uh, Malcolm was a fan, loves rock music, uh, acquired the radio station, was new to the radio industry and I think it's been quite a tough time for him but you look at that radio station really really successful nearly a million listeners really strong hours people who listen to Planet Rock listen for a long time and one of their issues has been I mean actually losing 300 grand a year isn't that bad for for a, a decent sized radio product? And you think absolute, you know, absolute lost money for the last few years as well. Um, but one of Planet Rock's issues is they just haven't been able to convert their very strong audience into revenue. That's it, really. It's harder to do when you're on your own. You're not part of a radio group. And so what this transaction means is that straight away Bauer can probably better monetize those hours and probably make that loss vanish as well as you know the savings of putting it in, in the same building as well. Bauer in a really interesting position at the moment. Uh, Global has done an excellent job with their radio stations, uh, with Heart and Capital and, and that network. Uh, the acquisition of Smooth and Real, which is due to go through next month, probably which will go through relatively easily. That's being um, looked at by the Competition Commission. It yep. is, and, and there might be a few little uh, remedies they have to do, but it'll probably be fine. Uh, puts them so far ahead in the radio industry, and it makes them number one and Bauer a very, very distant number two. Bauer have to scale up. They have to find new ways to get more hours and more audience. And what uh, this Planet Rock acquisition, it's, you know, it's not anywhere near the same scale as the GMG acquisition, but adds another 8 million hours to, to their total so they can start selling. And it kind of takes the fight to global a bit with having more national brands. Do you think Bauer might take a punt at Absolute if they're in a buying mood? There was lots of discussion that that was uh, imminent uh, and that seems to have, have calmed down a bit. Uh, it always seems to be that everyone gets quite close to acquiring Absolute and then the price goes up a little bit and they go, well, that's not what we agreed and then it, it kind of all stops again. There's a, a big difference now with acquisitions than, than back in five, six, seven years ago, uh, because now private companies own everything rather than public companies. And when you're spending your own money on acquisitions, they don't tend to be hundreds of millions of pounds acquisitions. They're the tens, or in this case, maybe maybe one or two. Uh, and if you bought a, an asset like happened with Absolute a few years ago, uh, those uh, owners in India are probably expecting a better return than, than they can get at the moment. Absolute always, at the point they're about to be sold always has a good radar book as well they had some really great figures uh, in the last radar too and you look at that and you think maybe as, as the owners you know what actually maybe we should stick with this 
And back to Planet Rock for a second, uh, Matt. What, what, what do you make of this, like, this suggestion that Bauer will uh, will dump uh, another of their rock brands, Kerrang, and then rebrand the whole thing Planet Rock and have it all coming out of London as a, as a national station? I, I'd be surprised. Kerrang's pretty strong for them, both in West Midlands FM and digital. Obviously, it's under 35. Planet Rock is over 35. I think Kerrang's a stronger brand, more well-known. Um, I think having the two... Uh, one for under 35s, one for over 35s, kind of owns the rock sector for them. You know, they've got uh, magazines and they've got telly, which supports that as well. I think having those two brands puts them in a great place. I think probably it raises the question over the small investment they put into Q Radio, which doesn't really have kind of much digital carriage at the moment. But having Kerrang for Young, Planet Rock for Old, I'd keep them both. And Helen, what do you make of the progress of digital radio? You know, listening continues to grow. I think in the last radios, it was um, across all digital platforms, as DAB, TV and online. It's about a third of listening now, so uh, it's getting there. I just wonder whether it is somewhat of a flash in the pan historically, though. I think things could devolve eventually to internet so strongly that it will make it a bit unnecessary now to take that diversion. But I suppose cars are a huge thing, and if there's more digital radio now in cars, then that would make a massive difference to it, as opposed to, say, four years ago. Do any digital-only stations actually break even or, or make a profit? Yeah, Funk is profitable, net contributor to, to Folder. I think probably if you look at the Absolute stations and those spin-offs and the way they sell them, pretty good. Smooth 70s. If Smooth 70s hadn't been around, uh, I think their figures would have been down 3%, but in effect with it, their hours are up 8%. You know, It's providing a lot of listening. They're selling that as part of the, the Smooth networks that's doing okay. Independent stations, it's harder because you're, you haven't got the scale of a big radio sales house. Uh, and so it's it's difficult to to convert your audience into revenue, but you know that's the job of the radio stations to kind of sort themselves out. I mean, what's great about the last figures? So I think it's like fifty one percent of the UK listen to some form of digital radio each week, be that DAB internet or, or digital telly. Two thirds of that is DAB. It seems to be a device that you know costs from twenty quid. It's replacing a lot of people's existing listening uh, and increasing the amount of radio they consume. So. For me, a pair of ears, a pair of ears. Don't mind if they're listening on the internet, on their phone, through the, uh, on DAB or, or on the telly. There are certain platforms which are cheaper to broadcast to. Our DAB costs are much less than what would be our internet costs if we were to broadcast to a similar number of people. Uh, and so I'm much happier than listening on a broadcast platform than an than internet one. My DAB radio keeps switching itself off during the Today programme because it obviously hates politicians. Yep, my DAB radio switches itself off, but only when I put uh, Five Live on. <laughs> Only five live. Uh, it cuts out every couple of minutes, which is great if it's the uh, football scores. Maybe uh, Jimmy from Talksport has been uh, interfering with the radio. Possibly he has. He's out. I wonder what he was doing outside with a large uh, with a large dustbin lid. Um, <laughs> but what I do need is a, a decent battery powered DAB. So you know, suggestions. Um, uh, are you allowed to do this? I'm not suggesting I have anything for free, of course. But uh, do send me your suggestions at John Plunkett one four nine. Yeah, and, thanks. And, and then let me know what Indeed. they are, John. What? Ideally under thirty pounds. Does such a thing exist, Matt? Uh, absolutely. One, one that doesn't have political affiliations, preferably. <laughs> or cuts out. Uh, right, well, staying with digital, new figures released this week show just how much damage iTunes and Spotify have done to high street music sales. Almost one in five music buyers now only purchase digital music. Um, sounds like I'm turning into Ken Bruce. According to the music industry trade body, the BPI. Uh, Helen, this probably explains if uh, one in five of us uh, no longer buy anything remotely resembling a, a CD uh, why HMV finds itself the situation it is now in. Well, partly, and also they did not react. Uh, they should have been reacting 10 years ago to the threat posed by Amazon. Amazon was massive 10 years ago, and they didn't. Uh, but I'm surprised that four in five people still do, because the, the way that people talk about it sounds like no one buys CDs anymore. Uh, the problem with the scenario of things uh, going a lot more towards uh, services like iTunes and Spotify is that the artists 
really don't make nearly as much money through them. The amount they make per Spotify play, as opposed to a single sale or even a radio play of a single, is micro pence. And Spotify itself hasn't been turning a great profit uh, yet. And iTunes gives people a pittance as well, and uh, they they have various problems with record companies. So it's not a, a perfect system yet. So Matt, it's good for listeners, but bad for the high street and even bad for the uh, recording artists. Yeah, you know, I, f- I feel bad for the staff who work at HMV and those places. Uh, as a consumer, I couldn't care less if CDs disappeared tomorrow. Yeah. If I want to consume music, be it streamed or on demand, I'll do it that way. We know from our research, kids use YouTube, actually, because it's the, the, the more inexpensive way to consume. They don't pay for a Spotify subscription, and they can just keep hitting replay on that One Direction uh, YouTube video. Uh, so the world, the world just changes. I think there was something like recording music's uh, kind of mid-'80s to 2000. has been the only time in history where music, have historically made uh, large large yeah. amounts of money and that was driven by large CD prices. I, I went home the other weekend I was going through some old stuff and I saw a CD, like a CD album and with an MVC sticker, remember them, oh. 16, $16.99 for the album. Oh, and, gosh. you know, they... Well, the Lamb Lives Down on Broadway is yeah. a particularly good album, Matt. Well, uh, yeah. but that's it. And, the, and the, 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 they can make super profits out of that. World shifted everyone has to work out what their new model is. I suppose the good thing about it is that uh, small artists and uh, just independent producers can make their music available to everybody. The difficulty is in the marketing. But I think that was the same in the years that you're talking about, Matt, because the huge sales were of a very few people. And um, I recently read David Byrne's book on how music works, and he did some pie charts. You wouldn't think David Byrne would be into pie charts, Mm -hmm. but he did them. And he uh, broke down how much he made out of a huge album through a huge record company and how much self-releasing. And it was essentially the same because the overheads were so massive on going the record company route. I have a neighbour now that just has a cloud with all its music in, so we can sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very impressive. But I, I'm, a, I'm a long way off that, you know. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I miss CDs purely because there'd be nothing to fly off the passenger seat when I turn right in, <laughs> in the car, you know, which is, which is what... But I still like, you know, I, I tend to still buy CDs, but I stick them in the cupboard and never get them out again. So yeah. it's purely a device to, to use to download onto a computer. But frankly, I should get with a plan, shouldn't I? Well, you've got a hard copy available when the internet goes down, John, and you never know when that might yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, I hear that might happen. Yeah, it's like, it's like books. They work in a power cut. <laughs> they do if you ever get around to reading one. Yes, it's my ambition this year to read one a month. Good luck with it. Yep. I've, I've heard the Lady Bird books failed. are excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Do you count books yeah. that you read to your daughter? Uh, well, if I did that, I'd be in the thousands yes. already. So this is uh, this is Snail and the Whale is uh, oh, his really? current favourite. Yeah. So uh, and I'm trying to get him to fun kids, Matt. But I think she's still she's nearly two. So I think it's still got a, a little way to go. There's plenty of time. There's yeah. plenty of time. She looks at the DAB radio set and just shakes her head, looking <laughs> looking sad and saying, "This will never take says, off." Yeah, yeah. She, she, she love our lovely interactive iPad app available in iTunes oh. for free. Right now. Oh, well, in that case, I shall download that tonight. Uh, and with that piece of buzz marketing, congratulations, Mr. Deegan. That's the end of part one. Also this week, London has found out who will provide their new local TV service and what will be on it. Evening Standard and independent owners Alexander and Evgeny Lebedev won the hotly contested battle to provide local TV for the capital with the Standard's London Live bid. What a great name. London isn't the only place in the UK which will get its own local TV station. There'll be 19 of them, all of which will be considered at a future media talk, of course. Uh, But this is the most lucrative, no doubt about that. In fact, it's the biggest UK TV licence to be awarded since Channel 5 in... Pop quiz? Uh, 1997. Brilliant, yes. I gave you half point each. You got Yay. the ni- you got the 19 got the bit. Mine was easier. That's right, yes. A tenth of a point. Um, with the Spice Girls. With the Spice Girls, yeah. What happened to them? Mm. 
Uh, and Tim Vine, I'm told by producer Matt. <laughs> I, f- I forgot Tim Vine was brother of... Jeremy Vine. Oh, it's turning into a quiz. <laughs> right, one each. Uh, but is it going to work? Who's going to watch it? And uh, like the Evening Standard, the good news is it will be free uh, on Channel 8 on your Freeview box, if you have Freeview. Matt, what do you make about this whole local TV thing? The answer is no one will watch it, <laughs> as, as, as we all know. I think if I look at... I, I'm just a Freeview household. Let's start with the positive. Yeah, I'm, I'm just a Freeview household, uh, and there are loads of channels on Freeview that I don't watch that have all right programmes on. I know Pick TV has you know, this, the stuff from Sky. Never watch it at all. Um, am I going to watch cheaply produced television for London? No. Well, you might if you were scrolling from BBC Three on Channel Seven to BBC Four on Channel Nine, and you accidentally got stuck in the middle. Uh, or it, w- it will even make my EPG as I go around pruning off the jewellery channel and, and QVC. I think you know. Well, go on. Let me persuade. It sounds I... like you might need a bit of persuasion. So, shall, shall I tell you the sort of thing you, you can watch? Knock us out on London Live. Right here we go. Uh, the heart of the service will be news and current affairs. Yeah, as you might expect. Uh, there's going to be a rolling news service called iNews. What? I don't know how they came up with that. Do they nick it off the newspaper that I? Are they, well, we, you know, we should uh, obviously relate it to uh, the uh, Lebedevs, of course. Yeah. Well, we should, you know, we should, um, we should give it a chance. Let me do other stuff. Uh, it will have um, so news. I've done that already. Yes, Sorry, got, got um, the news in. Thank you. Uh, it's also aiming to acquire dramas set in London, uh, such as London's Burning and uh, ITV's Whitechapel. Mm. Um, what That's it does weird. promise is forty-two hours a week of quality content created by Londoners for Londoners. So. Helen, we should, perhaps we shouldn't be too dismissive before it's even launched. Well, I think I'm less dismissive than that. Where I would watch it is, say, something like the helicopter crash that happened recently. If I wanted a short news bulletin about it, I'd probably go online. And if theirs came up uh, alongside the BBC's, I'd watch both. However, would I go on there to watch uh, London's Burning or other programmes made by Londoners for Londoners, which is the majority of television programming in this country, <laughs> I can probably live without. Uh, OK, Matt, let me, give, uh, let me throw this at you. What about London Go? Uh, which will help Londoners navigate arts, cultural and sporting events, such as the Notting Hill Carnival and Bicycle Polo in Fulham. Well, see, the problem is that, that they've You're done just something... You're ignoring that completely. Well, Go th- on. They've done something which I used to do, which was I used to write licence applications uh, for new radio stations. And they've had to write licence applications for TV. And they've worked out the money, and that's really the most important thing. And they'll, do it, they'll give it good promotion in their other media products, which is a great thing. And then they've worked out how to try and make it attractive enough to win the licence... Now they've got to try and work out how to actually make it work for their business. Uh, And the answer is that we don't need four hours of local news for London that hasn't got the resources to stretch four hours. Is that we need a great 30-minute programme that they put all the great resources that the standard have into making something great. And try and think maybe cleverly about how that other stuff works in other places. Um, Yeah, London's burning. It's all right. Yeah, might watch it. It might come up in the EPG. They might be able to acquire it for a cheap amount of cash. Um, but they've got to balance. They've got to balance all this stuff. There's stuff in there that they're going to create micro broadcasting for all the London boroughs in a kind of YouTube uh-huh. style thing. And you know, there, there is value YouTube. Are you investing cash into companies that are, are building hours on YouTube? Uh, do you need a broadcast TV channel to do that? Uh, where it works is the government wheeze, and this was Jeremy Hunt's great idea, the whole Birmingham, Alabama, Birmingham, UK, we must have some, some local TV channels, which, to be honest, not many people at the DCMS particularly agree with either, but they've, they've gone for it. And, and what, what we're going to find is some will go bust. The standard will probably acquire the rest of them. They'll put music, TV, and dating onto and shopping onto the, the off hours and just concentrate on doing two or three hours a, a day or even a week of, of great stuff you know to tune into. 
Does he just have infinite money? I mean, surely there's got to be an end of his money sometime. Well, there is also public money for it too. Um, mm. But you're right. I think it's interesting, Matt, that you mentioned about the the, the internet TV channels. Because uh, Helen, I think I think hyperlocal is the future. I mean, I, I read my local paper because it's all Do about you? St Albans. Yes, because yes, I'm interested in St Albans, St. Albans yeah. which is where I live. But, but I don't watch my regional TV news program because it's never about St Albans. <laughs> no. So I think you know there is there is there's something to be had there, but mm. you don't necessarily serve that with a with a, a, a local TV license which covers such a large area. And I think within London. It's it's rare that I think I need a news channel devoted to Crystal Palace or the goings-on of the uh, borough of Bromley because even things that happen 10 minutes away in the borough of Bromley feel like they're nothing to do with me. And if you if you look at the the network TV in America, America always gets bought up as, you know, there's local channels. Well, no, they're, they're mainly affiliates where they take network programming, but they do an 11 o'clock and a 6 o'clock really excellent news programme uh, with all those coiffured presenters yeah. and helicopters and those things. If you knew that it was a kind of a slightly edgier, more interesting version of London Tonight or whatever, then maybe that would bring that, that audience across. Okay, well, uh, other TV news this week. Delia Smith mm. announced she's quitting TV. Yeah. Are you going to miss her, Helen? Uh, she's a bit hectoring for me, but I think she's she's kind of making the right decision because uh, she pointed out that when she started, it was instructional, and now it's more lifestyle and uh, just looking at beautifully shot things of food, not being barked at by her telling you how to boil a thing. And uh, so she's going to do this online cooking school, and uh, that seems a good plan. And also, she is 71. Maybe she doesn't want to have to do a tv series it must be quite a lot of work and she's done a lot of recipes i remember when she did her christmas reboot a couple of years ago yeah, christmas <laughs> reboot that was delicious i <laughs> yeah. love that i love that it was great for vegetarians <laughs> but she was a lot of the time she was just when she, i heard these interviews with her and people were ringing up with their christmas problems and all the time they'd say what do you serve for a vegetarian and she said well in my first christmas book 30 odd years ago whenever it was i did parsnip roulade and that's essentially as good as i can get <laughs> so she's probably only got one recipe per per situation and she can't be bothered to think of more. She doesn't need to, Delia. Matt, there's an interesting phenomenon here because I think uh, online is where it's going. If you're looking up for a recipe, you just you go online now, whereas previously you go through the 26 recipe books you haven't opened up since since 1976. Uh, so online is where it's at, but at the same time, TV cookery shows, you know, audiences still going through the roof with uh, you know compulsive efforts like you know Great British Bake Off and what have you. I thought it was interesting, Delia, announcing this kind of two weeks after that Jamie Oliver has sort of rebooted his YouTube channel. So he's been one of the channels that's been funded by YouTube. It's called FoodTube. They've in effect. Uh, repositioned all of their old YouTube content and then they're adding daily shows some with him, some with other people and I was looking at the view counts of the new stuff and it's 8,000 views, 9,000 wow. views and it'll build, you know, it's still early days and it'll build and it'll grow uh, but you can't just pluck what seemed to work well on broadcast telly and hope that people seek it out through, the, through these new new platforms. We do loads of work with YouTubers at Folder and people who, these are kind of kids, 18, 19-year-olds who've created very popular channels that's about their lives, uh, that really talks to audiences. And there's some really entertaining, really, really great stuff. And they're getting a quarter of a million views for videos. They're, they've got nice lives. They're making decent money from it. And quite a lot of them now have been signed up by tele companies and other online firms to do presenting. But again, uh, those things are not doing anywhere near the scale of that one-to-one video connection they have with their audiences. Because they, and Guinness World Records is a good example. They've launched some new channels recently on YouTube. And the kids, they see that's, that's their, their people they like off of 
YouTube but just doing a thing that they're not that interested in. You can't just assume that you'll, you'll make a big smash. And I think one of the things Delia will probably find with her channels is you have to start again. You have to work out how you build an audience in this new place and really talk to them in a different way. I think she doesn't necessarily need to make a big splash, though, because she has done pretty well. I think she's realised that the climate has changed anyway of uh, being a well-known food person. But I think where she would succeed is just being the definitive video of how to make a thing. So if you want to know how to poach an egg or make gravy, you'd think, well, her video that tells me how to do it in three and a half minutes is going to be more reliable than another one. So I think that's how she probably will position herself. And Matt, who are these kids coming to you, getting on YouTube, having a quarter of a million hits and being signed up by TV presenters? And and, and am I too old to join them? Uh, You've got to get your camera out, John, and start preaching to the good burgers of St Albans. And maybe that's the the key. Hyper-local video blogging. It's the future. You heard it here first. Well, someone else will be presenting Media Talk next week. (laughs) Maybe maybe that was already planned. Uh, Anyway, um, uh, Matt and uh, Helen, for now, thank you very much. It's time to talk TV now, and I'm glad to say we've been joined by The Guardian's editor of TV and radio, um, Vicky Frost. Hello. Vicky, I had a fascinating Twitter chat uh, this week. Uh, always, every week, of course. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, a listener was keen to point out that we should, uh, we should look ahead more, and be, he suggested we be more broadcast magazine and less TV quick. But I said we weren't necessarily aspiring to either of those things. You're The Guardian, goddammit. We are The Guardian. <laughs> That's what we are. Also, uh, we can't really talk that much about things we haven't seen and don't really know anything about. We can just sort of say they're happening, which I don't know, you know, I don't know how much more I could bring to that conversation apart from telling you it is happening. Yeah, and also the phrase blocked. No, of course not. Of course not. You're still welcome to follow me. Uh, Someone's rubbed Plunkett up the wrong way. I didn't even know my dad was on Twitter. <laughs> uh, you're not my dad, if, you, if you're listening. Um now then, what's on the box this week in the style of TV Quick? <laughs> well, in the style of TV Quick, I think we should talk about BBC Four's new French import. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, in the style of, yes, well, I do want to talk about Spiral, which returns to BBC Four uh, this week in the uh, Bourgogne slot, as, or Killing slot, whichever you want to call it, in the Scandi Noir slot, even though, of course, Spiral, or Engrenage, if we're being very French, ooh, ooh is, it was actually preceded uh, a lot of the Scandi stuff. Uh, we're now on season four. Uh, BBC Four have been broadcasting it from the very beginning. I've got Spiral, the first series, in my cupboard of physical formats that, <laughs> that, that, I, that I never open. So she, is it uh, worth um, yes, I sort of breaking think, the seal? I sort of think of Spiral as um, the French shield, effectively. I, I think <laughs> The uh, shield. <laughs> Le Shield, exactly. Now, you have to stop yourself doing that with it because you can just franglais the whole series mm-hmm. and then it makes it go a bit wrong. I sort of think of it along those kind of lines. That's its closest kind of uh, comparator, I would say. And season three, the, which was the last season, sort of went a bit more whodunit with everything, uh, with, uh, what was it called, uh, The Butcher of La Villette. And this series is a bit, it seems to me, I've seen the first two, that uh, we're sort of returning to that more kind of classic spiral mode of, you know, very grey areas around around police corruption and society and and sort of entangling power and so on, uh, which I think is what it does really, really brilliantly. And and it really does. It's not a case of this is in the subtitled slot on BBC Four, therefore I have to love it because it's a Saturday night and that's what I have to watch then. 
I do think it is a, a really, really good cop drama. And also, it's actually quite different from all that Scandinavian stuff. I mean, I think people just talk about them in the same breath, but actually, they are quite different things. Engrenage um, is like, it's really quite gritty. I mean, there's, there's a bit in the first two episodes, uh, which is slightly ludicrous. It kind of goes a wee bit Game of Thrones at one point, and I was just a bit like, what? But, you know, the rest of it is business as usual. It's lots of people going, Gilou, Gilou, which is my favourite thing about it. Can they, can they edit in some tax just to, you know, make us feel better? <laughs> <laughs> Are you two into your subtitled uh, Saturday Night BBC4 drama? Uh, well, I want to be, but I'm a bit lazy because often I'm, uh, I'm handicrafting or reading when I'm watching telly and subtitles and multitasking are not necessarily compatible. Handicrafting? Yes. Th- this is a thing. I can concur on this. I quite like to crochet when I watch telly and uh, you can't crochet and watch telly and do subtitles at the same time. Impossible. You can knit and do subtitles at the same time, but I'm off knitting at the moment. So that's why I haven't watched Spiral yet. But I think the big reason why some of this stuff's popular is you have to actually watch it. You can't be tweeting away or doing your emails or putting the kettle on because you have to look at the screen to read what the subtitles are doing. Therefore, you get a bit more engaged. Yeah, I do think that's really true. I think sort of Spiral because, I mean, if, if you've got sort of any level of French, it at least sounds familiar to your ears. So I think it's, some, it's a slightly easier watch in that way than the Danish stuff where really they could be saying absolutely anything and you'd have no idea. And, of course, there are questions about whether we judge subtitled drama differently because we're having to concentrate on it in a different way. And, you know, certainly the last episode, but one of Borgen uh, episodes seven and eight, weren't very good. And I was a bit worried that part of the reason they weren't very good is because they were talking a lot in English. And actually, this was all a bit scales from my eyes, Emperor's New Clothes. I think, actually, they just weren't very good episodes and it happened to overlap with them speaking a lot of English. But it is a slight worry about how, you know, it's really difficult to judge something in exactly the same way as you would say the new Polyakov, it, it's not it's not as straightforward. I think. Mm, yeah, well, I think I think subtitles are habit forming, as I may have said before. An apologist to uh, regular podcast listeners who are sighing and going, "No, not this again." But uh, I just watched Breaking Bad at the weekend, the first series for the first time with subtitles. Uh, I don't know why it was in English. Why did but you it's just, watch it's it habit with forming. subtitles? You just kind of put them on, you get lazy on. Maybe my ears oh, are, are, oh are no. revolving. And this you is won't what read my mum does. I won't read a book, but I will read subtitles. <laughs> but this is what my mum does. That her subtitles, she's not deaf, none of these things, perfectly able to listen to the telly, but quite likes to sometimes have the subtitles on it. I don't understand it. To me, it is a mystery. Oh, good, to, good to know me and your mum have got something in common. It's, it's funny when it's the Eurovision, because the uh, simultaneous translation often doesn't go very well. <laughs> right, well, that's Spiral. What's next, Vicky? Well, we could talk a little about Dancing on the Edge, which, of course, is Polyakov's first series for television, which started on BBC Two this week. I must confess, I have watched the first one, which was 90 minutes long, and I haven't yet watched the second one, which broadcasts the evening after at an hour long. And I've got to be honest, I think that is probably true for a lot of people, because two and a half hours of Polyakov at the beginning of your week is quite a lot to get through, I think. Dancing on the Edge, I think it's quite an interesting idea. Of course, it looks absolutely beautiful. So it's all about, it's all set in the 30s, it's jazz age. There's lots of discussion about the jazz in it that I can't really lend any authority to because I don't know anything about jazz. So I just have to read that discussion and take their word for it, really, about how good or not the jazz bit is. But of course, you know, it looks really sumptuous and it moves really slowly. And uh, Is that like all this stuff or is that totally unfair? I think Polyakov does have a look and he does have a pace and you know part of his thing is that his stuff unfolds slowly and it's not very plot driven and and it lingers and that is part of its appeal but equally 
yes, perhaps it. I don't think you should sort of say, well, I like my things to be slow in a in a sort of as a rule. I think that's quite an odd way to behave in a way. Well, we've covered off the highbrow with uh, Polyakov and Dancing on the Edge. Um, Helen, you got to change your tone for us? <laughs> Not <laughs> that I'm suggesting, suggesting you would. <laughs> I'm somehow shallow of mind, but I am. Because I've been really enjoying ITV2's big reunion. Uh, this week, I believe it was uh, 911, that uh, titan of uh, boy bandage. And previous week, five, who were very dysfunctional and violent. And uh, there's something kind of... Uh, I think Hardy-esque is too strong, but uh, let's put it out there about it because there's people... You know, Hardy-esque? Brief- <laughs> this is the show that brings together 90s pop groups. Yeah, Atomic Kitten, Hardy-esque. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they, they burn brief and bright and then they've got 10, 15 years of aftermath to deal with. And then, are you watching this with subtitles on? Is this where this is going? <laughs> no, I, li- I like the immediate punch because I find subtitles have uh, micro spoilers in. You know, if they haven't said it yet. And also, one of the members of Five speaks in a ridiculous Jamaican accent, even though he lives on a farm in Lincolnshire. And I don't think the subtitles would really be able to deal with that. I just feel sorry for them all because all of them are hoping that maybe they'll be the new Take That. I think they know that they aren't, especially the ones that relied on breakdancing because now they're in their 40s. It's just uh, too bad for the joints. I mean, I guess they think they're all going to be the new Steps, aren't they? And this is the format that's going to do, you know, Steps sort of had that crazy Mm. show that was just absolutely car crash watching. And I suppose, that you know, off the back of that, this is what they all... Yeah. Oh, just think, if if you're hopeful to be the next Steps, that's where where you've got to. Well, you can read more about the bigger reunion in TV quick. (laughs) Uh, I like the idea of mic- <laughs> micro spoilers. We all feedback, John. <laughs> we do indeed on our Facebook wall or our blog or at John Plunkett 149. Uh, micro spoilers on subtitles. It's true, especially Sky. The subtitles don't always sync with the uh, the words coming out of the mouths. It really irritates me. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, especially on Seinfeld. It kind of kills the gag. 21st century, god damn yeah. it. Can't yeah. we do better? Dear customer services. Uh, and before we go on to the Media Monkey quiz, which I know is keenly anticipated by you all, um, I should say, uh, Vicky, it was also the Broadcasting Press Guild nominations were out this oh, yes. week. Yes. And five nominations for a certain BBC2 drama. Parade's End. <laughs> to you blankly sorry sorry Parade's End well Parade's End is such an interesting thing isn't it because it really does split people I mean my feeling about it is Rebecca Hall's performance is absolutely astonishing I've never seen her be better than in this and I don't know many other people who can touch her for that performance brilliant but as a programme as a whole I'm not entirely sure it would I felt like there was a reason it hadn't been adapted before and perhaps it was that it, it didn't quite work as an adaptation that said it was really ambitious it looked really amazing it tried to do interesting things and you know Cumberbatch is no slouch either so loads of good things going for it yeah well the BPG awards are in the middle of next month right now time for media monkey quiz and uh, my first question to you is what was less than super about this year's Super Bowl uh, power cut Fantastic dig in one point. Yes, it was taken off air, I think, for 20 minutes, half an hour. Um, and CBS was sort of frantically filling. Uh, but it did right. In fact, uh, it actually made it more exciting because... Uh, well, it was needed recovery time after Beyonce, didn't they? That's right. Yes, they ran out of energy. Uh, no, they, they said that it was nothing to do with the pack-up. It was nothing to do with uh, the halftime show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it ran off an entirely different generator, apparently. <laughs> really? She had a whole generator just for the wind machines. <laughs> PBS tweeted during the uh, uh, the power cut, uh, if you turn over, you can watch Downton Abbey on PBS. Oh, right. <laughs> Bit of a gear change. <laughs> uh, uh, right, question number two. Why can you uh, now live in the BBC as well as listen to it and watch it? Uh, it's for sale. Yeah, you can buy a bit of Broadcasting House, can't you? TV Centre, yeah, the donut. TV Centre, sorry, yes. 
Yeah, that's right. The TV centre, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not, not broadcasting. Not yet. broadcasting. Not house yet. At all. Give it a few <laughs> years till they move out again. Do you, do you get Brucey as the concierge? He's, he's on, it's, like, it's like that Channel 4 show where all the stars are uh, working in the hotel. And that went well. It, it went very well. Um, so, uh, yeah, he could operate the lift, couldn't he? Where do you want to go? Higher or lower? Uh, thank, moving on. And the third question this week, uh, almost a tiebreaker, is uh, why are French authorities not happy with Twitter? Hashtag Sacre Bleu. They're not keen on the word hashtag because it's all about this franglais thing and sort of, you know. Uh, uh, so what do they want to replace the word hashtag with, Matt? Can you give me that for the bonus point? <sighs> my French isn't that good. I need to watch more spirals, clearly, to work this out. <laughs> True. And my Esther English is not going to do justice. To, oh, not frankly, Esther English. It's just a cut glass uh, London accent. Anyway, uh, I'm not going to do it justice, but apparently it's Modiez, who did not used to run TalkSport. That's Moz D. <laughs> oh. It's Modiez, it says here. I bet that's the only joke that's been made about Mosdi in the context of the French hashtag thing. It might well be Moz if you're listening and it's happened before. Uh, do let us know. Well, I have one more question which I was slightly confused to ask, but I'm going to, Vicky. This could be one for you. Oh, um, no pressure. Why is there a chap at the BBC who's got something in common with the chap who turned down the Beatles? Uh, is this about Richard III? It is, yes. yes and Martin it, Davidson. Yes, Martin Davidson, who's a very, very nice man. And I thought it was quite brave to admit this. Uh, a history uh, commissioner uh, basically admitted that he turned down the Richard III Bones in a Car Park uh, programme, basically, because he didn't think... And also, Dragon's, he, went, he saw Dragon's Den format in Japan and didn't think there was anything in it. So, brave man to admit both of those. I'm sure everybody has things that they have missed, but most of us don't tell a whole room of journalists about it. Uh, Is it right he turned down Richard, he turned down Richard III because uh, he thought it had been done twice before? Oh, I didn't hear that. Oh, maybe. Richard III. Yeah, right. Yeah, doesn't matter. Oh, right. Oh, sorry. Sometimes your jokes are gone. They need subtitles, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they sort do. of punchline subtitles. I think the world's not ready. <laughs> Certainly, I'm not ready sometimes. The world's not ready. That's the title of my autobiography. Uh, anyway, my thank you to all this week's guests who are from left to right, uh, if you're watching on the webcam uh, Helen Zaltzman and Mr. Matt Deegan and Ms. Vicky Frost, and of course, also to Mr. Dan Saber. Uh, leave all your comments, particularly if they relate to TV listings magazines, on our Facebook wall or our blog or you can tweet me at johnplunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.